0: You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win.
1: One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player.
2: Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. Now, this are, these are rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm not.
0: Analytics don't work, don't work, at, work at all. They're just they a crap no, to some good people good. who were really smart, made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer.
2: He's a follower. He's a slave maker and a shot caller. In case you didn't know, I got t He shattered the mall. And all he does
0: is win. All, all he does. Is Hello, and welcome to Hot Takedown 538 Sports Podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, and editor at 538.com. With me in the studio, it's Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. How are you doing? Neil, welcome back from vacation. Thank you. You were in Ithaca? I was. And did you, the gorge? No, I I,
2: no uh, I was I was relaxed. I mean, I saw some from a distance, but I, I didn't know, you know, leaping off of them or anything dangerous to to that effect. So it, it was all told a very calm and relaxing, uh, wonderful vacation, I hoping, and I would
0: highly recommend it. I was hoping you'd come back with like a bungee jump segment that you wanted to do. Uh, no, again, about no, no, no. Physics no. of bungee jumping with us, not in the studio. It's Mike Goodman freelance writer and host of the Double Pivot Pod. Hi, Mike. Hey, guys. Long
1: time. But long our, time. Right. our long national summer nightmare without soccer is over.
0: <laughs> yes, it soon is. And listeners, you might be able to tell that we are going to talk about soccer today. Kate Fagan is out. I think she's finally finished her Whirlwind book tour in which she yeah. ascended even to the heights of The Daily the Show. The Daily Show. Which uh, made Neil and I feel particularly both proud and just like sort of residual famous, I yeah. think. So, Kate will be back soon, but is on assignment this week for ESPN, and so won't be with us. But instead, we have Mike, and we're so happy that he's here. And so, on today's show, I think we're going to talk about, as I said, all soccer. We're going to start with a conversation about Neymar and his record signing, and then move on from there to do a little preview of the English Premier League, which starts on Friday, and talk about whether Chelsea is likely to repeat or not. And then we'll close out the show by talking about the MLS and its expansion plans, which seem to be rather aggressive for a, a league of its size. Okay. Should we get going with Neymar? Are you guys ready to talk? I'm ready to talk. Let's do it. The Brazilian Wonderkind. Uh, so last week, Paris Saint Germain. Is that right, Mike? I, you know me. I can't pronounce any soccer team. Yeah, playing. it's close enough. Let's right. go PSG. PSG signed Neymar from Barcelona. It was a record. Signing for just over $260 million. There's a five-year contract, I believe, on the other side of that transfer fee. There was some drama about La Liga not accepting the check, and then Neymar ends up. Literally not accepting it. Like, physically, a guy showed up at a door, and they turned him away. (laughs) And then, Mike, uh, Neymar finally decamped for France. This broke entirely the record. The previous... Transfer record, which was 123 million dollars to Paul Pogba, which man you did, so it, it more than doubled it. Mike, what is going on here? I mean, more than doubling the record for money yeah. seems
1: to- so. I think there's probably like two different things at play. One is just the general money flowing into soccer in general, right? The increased TV contracts, the in, increased marketing, right? Like, this is a sport where 15 years ago, most teams lost money, and now everybody at the top of the game is making money. So you've seen, like, a, like across the board, tons of increases in, in transfer fees and salaries and all that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, I mean, this deal is, is way beyond that, right? Like, it's one of these weird market dislocations where the, the sort of – the the inspiration for the deal, right, the motivation for why this is happening. is not necessarily like Neymar's worth that much money on the field, but it it has to do with ownership and wanting to make a statement and wanting to have a superstar and and all of these kinds of things. So the question is, like, how much of a market dislocation is this? Like, is this a one-time, weird, separate thing, or is this sort of indicative of where the sport is going? And it seems more like the former than the latter to me. Yeah, I wanted to
2: ask, like, what does this say about how good Neymar is, especially in relation to our friend Messi, who we've talked about at length as being probably actually like that much better than the rest of uh, you know his his peers in terms of talent. It seems based on the numbers that Neymar is one of the best players in the world, but not you know in that Messi stratosphere. But is is that kind of a correct reading of things at this point?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think Neymar is one of the few players in the world that has the claim to be the best player non-Messi-Cristiano Ronaldo division. But, like, Messi and Ronaldo were both hitting, you know, both hitting their early 30s, and so they... You know, if you want to look for a player who is going to be the best player in the world for the next five years, Neymar is is in that discussion. Probably even more so than Messi and Ronaldo, because they're starting to hit the points in their career where you, you expect their performance to begin to drop off, while Neymar is just hitting his prime now.
2: And in terms of just you know sort of the impact, and, and uh, I think we've probably talked about this on shows in the past about you know is a is a forward like Neymar the type of player who does tend to have the most impact on the game, and uh, is it sort of like you know when we think of a LeBron James in, in basketball, like certain positions and certain roles on a team have enough uh, gravity to them and enough impact on the game that they can justify you know huge salaries and, and a lot of focus and attention if you're going to have a player that is sort of the soccer equivalent of that is it a player that plays the same sort of position and style as Neymar
1: you know it's tricky it's certainly the position that we're the best equipped to measure right like the closer you are to the scoring of goals the easier it is to tell exactly how much you're contributing to that Mm -hmm. to that goal scoring and so historically the biggest transfers have always been for Forwards and wingers, like, you know, guys that have not only have the ball at their feet, but have the ball at their feet frequently in dangerous areas. I think it's a little less clear that that's always the most influential player on the field. You know, I think, I think more it's that we can be more confident in our assessments of who is a good attacker and who is not, where there's considerably more question among, say, the defensive side of the game and center backs and defensive midfielders as to exactly which ones of them are the best and in which systems they're going to be the best. So it makes sense that you spend tons of money on attackers, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily because they're always the most influential.
0: So in a piece that Michael Kayley, who hosts the Double Pivot podcast with you, a, a soccer podcast that those interested in soccer from a more analytics standpoint should definitely take a, take a listen to and subscribe to. So Michael Kayley writes that that Neymar is sort of like a, a rare forward, because he combines scoring and ball progression, that he can advance the ball towards the net. And and this is brings us back to some of the broader conversations we've had around soccer and how it relates to something like hockey, where we talk about ball possession being really the, the sort of metric that you should be thinking about as you evaluate players, and, and maybe that means that defensemen are, are more important, is with our still sort of nascent understanding of soccer and what's good in soccer, and we've talked about in the past on a stat school with you around soccer... Is it the case that, that ball progression often comes from forwards and midfielders? Or can defensemen also have ball progression? Maybe there's like an undervalued market there.
1: You, I mean, it's, it's somewhat dependent, but you usually see ball progression from attackers and midfielders. It can actually be somewhat rare. You'll find attackers who don't actually progress the ball frequently uh, as well. Guys who are sort of more, more focused on just getting on the end and scoring. So that that speaks really strongly to... The diversity of Neymar's game, like how good he is at not only finishing, scoring, and assisting, but sort of transitioning teams from defense into attack, and that's not that's not necessarily a given with with attacking players. Um, it is sort of the the biggest strength of, of more creative midfielders. Um, you know, when you, you're looking at a guy like Paul Pogba, who sometimes his statistical contributions can be a little trickier to suss out. One of the things that he clearly stands out at is that. He's a guy who having the ball at his feet lets you move, you know, down the field towards attack. Whether he's dribbling by people or passing people, you know, or passing the ball by people or, or receiving the ball, he's really, really good at progressing the ball down the field. And so you have that trait in Neymar who, was, who marries it to finishing moves. And, you know, it, it creates a really well-rounded, very valuable player.
0: So let's talk quickly, and then I want to move on to to the to the Brits. Let's talk quickly about Barcelona, who have been a juggernaut in La Liga for a very long time on the world stage for for a very long time. Although they they regressed in the last Champions League, I believe, or was that the UEFA Cup? I, I get my, my no. Soccer the last two
1: Champions Leagues, they both they they haven't gone as far as you might have hoped.
0: And so you know, without Neymar, with an aging Messi, what's what's the future for that team, and and how do they? recover from, from this departure, I would think that $260 million helps. Yeah,
1: right. So they've got a lot of money burning a hole in their pocket, and they're going to turn around and spend it, almost certainly. The question is, what do you do now? I mean, you can spend a lot of money to maximize the next two to three years of Messi's career, right? You have the best player in the world. You know, you want to maybe you want to max out the amount of trophies that you win right now. Uh, if you do that, mm-hmm. you're looking at five years from now, sort of a scary situation. Where if everybody's aging with Messi, what are you left with? So you know some of the some of the names they've been linked with, Usman Dembele in particular of um, Borussia Dortmund, are much younger. They're sort of like, you know, they would fall into the category of the next big thing. Same with Paulo Dybala of Juventus. And then there's some more traditional attacking midfielder type players like Philippe Coutinho at Liverpool, who's you know kind of a star right now. Slightly older, although still, you know, very much in his prime and entering his prime. So I think the the expectation is they're going to turn around and spend a lot of money right now. It's just, you know that's not going to replace Neymar because Neymar is that good. So the question is, Is how are you maximizing both for now and the future?
2: So uh, with a team like Barcelona and just in general in European soccer, maybe this is uh, also just a trait of, of the way things are set up economically there. But is a team like that ever really going to go through like a down stretch because of the money that they have and sort of the pipeline that they have? Is, is it possible or is it like a little like college football over here where It's like you rarely see teams like Alabama or Ohio State go through down periods because there's just always, you know, new players coming up in and and they can kind of, you know, out just outgun the opposition indefinitely.
1: You know, if you run your team well, you shouldn't necessarily go through down periods, but have two or three transfer windows where things don't work. And, yeah, you can, you know. Manchester United has huge economic advantages. Uh, when Alex Ferguson retired, they spent you know, three years in sixth place, basically. You know, three years struggling just to make the Champions League. And you know, even last year, they finished sixth. I mean, they were a better team, but they finished sixth. So you can... It's, I mean, having money gives you a huge advantage, but you can definitely mess that advantage up in ways that you'll be digging out from, from years at a time.
0: Okay, I think let's leave it there for the Spaniards and uh, transition into the English Premier League. In the EPL, Chelsea are the defending champions. Chelsea are. You see that, guys? Yeah, that's very professional. I know. I know. I'm learning. Chelsea are the defending champions, though they didn't seem to have the Best off season, or, or at least the buzziest of off seasons. Instead, their rivals signed big name players. Manchester United signed striker Romelu Lukaku from Everton for ninety seven million dollars. Man City has spent around three hundred million dollars on Benjamin Mendy, Kyle Walker, and others. So, how should we regard Chelsea coming in to this season, Mike? I, I read um, that Antonio Conte said that they wanted to avoid a Mourinho season, referring to the. Uh, to the, the very, very, very bad uh, season uh, a few years ago with, with Mourinho in charge. And it seems like they're worried about a winner's curse a little bit.
1: Yeah, and they should be. You know, they had sort of a built-in advantage last year where they weren't in the Champions League. So they had fewer games than their, their opponents. And, like, their, their summer was okay. Um, I think the, they expect Diego Costa, their striker, to leave, but they've replaced him with Alvaro Morata. They sold the manager to Manchester United, but they brought in uh, Bakayoko from Monaco to replace him and you know, these are all moves that that make sense. They lack a lot of depth though. And when you go from in effect playing one game a week to playing two games a week, you need that depth. And so that's a, that is a real challenge that they haven't addressed, and it's a concern hanging over their season for sure.
2: So which teams do you think sort of added the most then and, and are kind of the up-and-coming teams that we should watch for? Or is it just sort of going to be difficult for teams to break through and, and kind of challenge the, the top of the table? Because last year was sort of business as usual, right, after the kind of weird year of the year before with Leicester City sort of disrupting things. Things were basically back to normal with, with the juggernaut teams Sort of being at the top, right?
1: Yeah, and it's 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 hard to see again a, a team breaking into the top six. You know, clearly Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal, right? That's that that's the group, and Liverpool. That's the six. Uh, and it's hard to see Everton are probably the seventh best team, either Everton or Southampton. But there's a pretty big gap, and so like it's possible somebody could implode and and, and drop. But it's more about is something going to go horribly wrong for one of those six teams than it is is like Everton or Southampton or you know West Ham or somebody going to take a, a huge leap forward. Among those six, if you're going to pick one who's going to stand out, it's Manchester City, uh, just because last season statistically they were you know within. They were very close to Chelsea over the course of the season, and they've added a lot. Uh, they had a, a, a huge hole. They they had aging and not good great fullbacks. They went out and spent tons of money to bring in uh, Kyle Walker and Danilo and Mendy. So that's three, you know, that's three top line fullbacks to add into the mix. You know, they they have they have a tremendous amount of talent that they've now added to a team. They've also addressed their their keeper issues, so they've closed a lot of the holes from a team that was already sort of competitive right at the top.
0: So you mentioned depth for, for Chelsea, and, and it sounds like one of the things that you're impressed by with with Manchester City is that there is depth there now. And I'm wondering how much that comes into play in the Premier League in, in a given season. This is a novice question, obviously, but is, is it something where there's an attrition rate similar to... I don't know. Baseball where you know that a couple starting pitchers are going to go down at some point for some stretch of the time and so you need that depth especially in your in your pitching staff or is it something where you know if you have a great starting five in the NBA you can at least progress into the conference finals as long as nobody gets gets hurt.
1: Yeah, so it's um I would look at it at like basketball but if you had a lot more back-to-backs, right? So you know how this, you know, you know how Greg Popovich will will just sort of have like the the handful of games a year where like his seven best players get DMP coach's decision. Um, yep. You sort of have to manage yourself that way a little bit in soccer when you're playing, you know, two games, you know, two games a week most weeks. You have to give guys games off. You have to rest guys. You have to rotate your team. And so ideally what you want is not just a starting 11, but you want 15, 16 guys that even if some of them are backups, you're comfortable with them playing minutes against top line opposition. The last two Premier League champions haven't had European football, so they've had that advantage of basically being able to play a very pared-down squad, playing 11 or 12 or 13 guys, playing them the vast majority of the minutes, and being able to get away with it because they didn't have to balance the extra competition. Uh, It helps.
0: Okay, so that that, that seems reasonable. And so... Then how are we to think about some of those other lower-tier teams as they start to peck at the top six? Is depth where they should be concentrating so that they can take advantage if someone does go down in the top six, or... You know, it seems like Leicester was such an anomaly now that we don't even see them as a blueprint. We just see it as an anomaly. And And I I think that that's
1: that's smart. I think if teams are trying to, quote unquote, do a Leicester, they're probably doing themselves a disservice. So if you look at what happened with, say, Everton, I think they're a good example. They lost their big star in Lukaku. And rather than spending a lot on a big star, they spent on five or six players You know, one of them is Wayne Rooney and that's sort of like a storybook thing where he's coming back to his boyhood club and maybe it doesn't make pure soccer sense but you understand why they do it but more to the point they're they're trying to put together a a broadly pretty good squad with depth because they're competing in the secondary European competition the Europa League and to me that that's sort of a sensical approach right don't try to catch lightning in a bottle, but sort of slowly and steadily build a base that you can compete in a European competition, you can compete for a Europa League spot in the Premier League, and if something weird happens with the teams above you, one or two teams you can maybe reel them in. But what you don't want to do is sort of sacrifice your long-term health as a club, your ability to, you know, sign young players and let them develop um, to sort of, chase magic which really isn't coming
0: so i have a question about the epl as we sort of think about the european soccer scene as a whole a lot is made of the epl and the transfers within it and obviously it seems that still to be the strongest league in the world is that fair to say mike top to bottom i think top to bottom yeah, yeah. but it does seem to be like a lot of attention is paid to a league that really struggles whose teams struggle when they go out in open European competition is do we have a sense for that or, or is that yeah I mean not it's, the it's, case a, it's
1: a fair critique and a fair criticism, and I think there's been a lot of thought over the last five years as to why that is look some of it might just be that you have Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo at, at you know at Barça and Real Madrid, and those are you know two generational players, part of it is the Premier League schedule and the depth of the league in which the, you know the league matches are harder. They take more out of you. Um, and sort of managers over the last few years, Pep Guardiola, uh, Jurgen Klopp, they've come in from European competition, you know, from European leagues, from from La Liga or or the Bundesliga, and, and made that point. So you know, it's not just sort of the self importance of the Premier League saying it. You have managers who have coached across multiple leagues who come into the Premier League and say, look, physically this is different. So that's part of it. I think another part of it is you have, we're, you know, we're talking about a big six across the top of the Premier League. So the, the sort of the best talent in the league is distributed across six teams. In Germany or Italy, it's really a big one. In Spain, it's a big two, two and a half. So those leagues, sort of the best talent gets more concentrated. I think that's part of it. All that said... I think we may be entering a period now where we're going to see a little bit of a resurgence from Premier League teams in the Champions League. You know, Ronaldo and Messi are just that little bit older. Both, you know, both of those teams are, are competitively still great, but you can sort of see some cracks and see a slight coming back to the pack for them. Uh, same can be said of Bayern Munich, who rely very heavily on Arjen Robbery and Frank Ribery on the wings, both of whom are in their mid-30s now. Um, so if it's just sort of the, the sort of quirks of where the talent is, I'd expect Premier League teams to sort of start to be able to make these deep runs that have been missing the last few years.
0: So one last question on Premier League before we move on to the MLS. We ta- we've talked a lot about when to start trusting results in all the different sports that we cover yeah. at five thirty-eight and on, and on Hawk Takedown. Yeah. And I'm curious what the answer is for, for casual fans of the EPL. When... Yeah. You know, should something surprising start to solidify into something real in the season? Is it a third of the way in, as Neil always told me? It is in baseball, um, or is it earlier or later, given you know the pace and, and, and the predictivity of games?
1: Yeah, I, I think the best way to uh, – the answer with goals is, is we're talking about, like, halfway through the season. But if you want to look at something more advanced, something like expected goals – does a pretty good job after as little as five games of giving you a handle on who's good and who's not. It's not perfect, but you can start to really get a picture of who you expect to be good by looking at their expected goal difference after five games, which is, you know, a little, like a seventh of the season, basically
2: and so then uh you know kind of once you get that sense of of who's playing well, barring some kind of personnel changes or, or something like that, we would expect outliers to kind of regress back toward whatever their underlying form has been, according to
1: something like yeah exac- exactly now obviously it doesn't always happen right like you you know teams can teams can outperform or underperform their expected goals for more than a season, but we'd be pretty comfortable in saying that that's what they're doing,
0: okay. Great. Okay, now onto our significant digit. When a telling number from the world of sports is delivered to Hot Takedown today, I have the digit. That digit is 22 teams. That's the number of MLS teams in the league. That is up from 10 teams in 2004. So in just 13 years, the league has more than doubled. Two more teams uh, one in Los Angeles and one in Miami are coming online in the next couple of seasons. And then the MLS is also thinking about announcing two more expansion franchises this fall. And then another two next year and their ownership groups scrambling and, uh, some are lining up to throw as much as $150 million to own a team. Deadspin wrote an interesting piece on this, this, this week, I believe, or in, in the last week, um, and it was um, it was sort of questioning the business model of the MLS. It was called, is, is MLS a Ponzi scheme? Um, the idea here being that the owners are paying a ton of money into the league now, despite some flagging or some just not impressive viewership numbers and a lot of the revenue still made in person at the game. And some economists, some sport economists saying, that's not how modern leagues are run, that modern leagues are run through television revenue. And so, Mike, I'll, I'll turn to you first, you know, for a while, I felt like we were talking about the MLS. Will it ever survive? Will it ever get you know players that that fans have heard of and, and care about? And now, that doesn't seem to be the question day to day. But Deadspin's identifying perhaps a, a longer term existential threat, which is that there's a lot of money, but not a lot of there there.
1: Yeah, it's it, it, it's a it's a fair concern, right? Like the you know a large part of the existing team's revenue comes from these. You know, these, these expansion fees paid by new clubs. I, you know, I think that marketing is a big part of, of where their revenue stream comes from, too, and that's, that's a, a company called Sum, which also includes the, the men's national team and the women's national team and all this other stuff. But, you know, the percentage of revenue that comes from expansion fees is concerning, for sure. That said, like, it's pretty easy to see how long-term existing teams are making money because costs are much lower than other, than other American professional sports. Salaries are much lower. Um, these kinds of things. So it's not hard to see how some of the original owners make money. It is, it can be hard to see where if you're looking at teams coming in and paying $150 million to join the league, where exactly it is they think their future revenue is coming from. That's going to like make that back and make them profitable. Um, But, some of, those teams, some of those ownership groups aren't necessarily in it for profitable ownership of teams anyway, right? When Manchester City comes in and buys into MLS, profit is probably a fairly small uh, part of their decision-making process. You'd have to ask David Beckham and his Miami group how much they expect it to be about making money as opposed to being about owning a professional sports team. So, I mean, I think that these are concerns, but that doesn't, I mean, they're valid concerns, but I think that, like, Will they turn a profit and when is only part of the equation.
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things in that Deadspin piece was that they noted that Forbes, you know, who usually does these franchise evaluations for all the major sports leagues, and they look at the valuations by, you know, in addition to seeing what similar teams uh, in recent years, when they are sold, kind of go for. They also look at the revenue streams and and all the various things as best they can estimate for, you know, the financial health of uh, a given league and a given franchise, and this was. One of the few times where they kind of had to, to 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 look at the numbers and and kind of explain themselves in the sense of why the franchise valuations are kind of going up when in fact a lot of teams seem to be posting operating losses, and I think you touched on. You know, one of the big things is that, uh, turning a profit isn't necessarily the, the main goal. And it's probably related to the fact that, uh, this is another point that they made in the Deadspin piece was there are a lot more rich people now in the, in the country, you know, as a percentage of the population uh, than there were even, you know, back in 2004. And all of the most desirable ownership slots in in pro sports have kind of already been taken or cost uh, a incredible amount of money, a stupid amount of money. And so if you're sort of, you know, a, a super wealthy person, but you don't want to or can't buy into the NBA or, or one of the big four leagues, maybe, you know, the the MLS is like, hey, come over here. You know, you can you can burn your money, you know, through that hole in your pocket with us and you can call yourself a, a big time, big league pro sports owner. And technically, that's what you are, even though you're owning a team that you know, might not actually be worth as much as you spent for it and, and not profitable, at least in the, in the short term.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of that, right? Like, as, as eye-watering as $150 million is, right? Like, the Clippers went for $2 billion. So that's that's 5% of, of what the Clippers cost a few years ago. You know, that's, that's part of it. I think the other thing to keep in mind, though, is MLS has a centralized ownership setup, and I think the article touched on this, where, technically speaking, right, everything is owned by MLS and franchised out. And that means that putting those numbers together are, are more difficult to do. And it's, I think it's a questionable assertion that a lot of these teams are losing money. It's just very, very hard to have open books. And that's not unintentional by MLS, right? Right. So I'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that a lot of these, especially the, the legacy teams, the, longer, the, longer, the teams that have been in existence longer are actually losing money.
2: The thing that might be more interesting than just sort of these dollars and cents things is uh, just in terms of the talent base uh, being able to support such a exponential increase in the number of teams and the number of roster slots in a, in a small number of, of years. I'm reminded of when the NHL uh, expanded from about 20 teams to 30 in a decade, uh, and it seemed to have like really uh, strong dramatic effects on the, the quality of play and the balance of the league and, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, uh, Michael, what do you think about the way that uh, this is going to play out and has been playing out on the actual sort of on-field product and, and the competitive balance of the league and also just
1: the quality of talent in the league? Yeah, so there's, I think one thing that makes this different than hockey is that the international player base is incredibly deep, um, right, because it's a world sport. And, and. You know, MLS are nowhere near, is nowhere near the league, the top of the period in terms of, the pyramid in terms of the talent that they attract right now. So, you can expand and you can also, uh, if you have owners who are willing to invest, depending on how you set up the rules of the league, make choices to explain, expand the accessibility of the league to international talent, um, and counteract sort of the diluting tendencies. What comes along with that though, is somewhat of a separation in terms of who is willing to spend to bring in talent and who isn't that the league historically has not had. It's historically been, because of the salary cap, a very – the league has had a lot of parity. And I think we're starting to see a shift away from that as MLS has focused on adding new and more robust ways to allow owners that want to spend to spend. And so you're gonna have more of a separation into haves and have-nots as if they continue down this path of both expanding teams and sort of easing back the restrictions on spending for owners that want to spend.
2: Is it sort of a thing where MLS kind of can't have it both ways? They can't have parity and, and maybe a lower uh, salary landscape across the whole league and also expand all these teams and also be able to lure away players from the other world leagues. They kind of have to either choose one direction or another, and maybe this is like a, a, a branching point for the league going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a constant balancing act, and I think that yeah, as as if you're going to focus on expansion, then you need to then then you're going to have to make active decisions in ways to keep sort of the talent level up, and by doing that, you're opening yourself up to sort of the the divergence and, and moving away from parity, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it is it is a choice that the league is making, and it, it does change the league.
0: Okay, I think let's leave our, our conversation about the MLS there, and uh, and close out the show. Mike Goodman, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining for a whole show and perhaps our first phone guest host, single topic. You're just making history here at Hot Take ah, Making history and I don't even know it. Love it. And listeners, if you liked what you heard from Mike, please do go subscribe to his Double Pivot podcast uh, with Michael Kaley on on soccer. It's, it's a delight. Neil Payne. Thanks, Chad. Always, always such a pleasure to it's, talk to it's you It's great sports. to be back in, in studio. I'm sure it's great to be back from vacation as well. Oh, sure. Our uh, podcast... Couldn't wait to get back. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Alice Wilder is our intern. We've got production assistance for the last time today from Martin Onebu. Martin, you've been a total delight. Thanks for all your help these last few months. You can email us at podcast at com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on favorite podcasting app We're also on itunes of course as well subscribe to itunes.com slash 538 while you're there be sure to review and or rate the show it helps others discover the program our theme song is by mystery mansion i'm chad Matlin. talk to you next time